Principles of Economics, my complete guide to understanding economics, is now available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook from safeddean.com, Amazon, and many more booksellers worldwide. And now, I am also teaching a course based on this book on my website, safeddean.com. Principles of Economics will run the whole academic year, from September to June, and will have a new lecture every two weeks, as well as weekly live online discussion seminars open to learners from all over the world and from all walks of life. Whether you're a student, a professional, or a retiree, you are making economic decisions every day, and this course will arm you with the wisdom of centuries of economists to improve your economic decision-making. You'll also get a free book of Principles of Economics if you sign up for the course. Go to safeddean.com and sign up now. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by Orange Pill App, the Bitcoin-only social network that connects you with high-signal Bitcoiners, events, and now merchants as well. If you're like me and can't stop talking about Bitcoin, you know how challenging it can be to talk to the no-coiners and how nice it is to talk to someone who gets you. With the Orange Pill app, you can find the Bitcoiners near you and they can replace the no-coiners in your life. You can organize events and meetups with local Bitcoiners and wherever you travel, you can meet up with local Bitcoiners all while being as anonymous as you like. So if you want to build your local network of Bitcoiners, find a Bitcoin meetup or merchants accepting Bitcoin, head over to orangepillapp.com to sign up or download the app from the App Store or Google Play Store and send me a DM so we can get connected. The Bitcoin Standard Podcast is brought to you by CoinKite. CoinKite are my favorite makers of Bitcoin hardware. They produce the legendary Open Dime, the first Bitcoin bearer asset, as well as the reliable cold card hardware wallet, the excellent stainless steel seed plates for storing your seed phrases, and the block clock. Now, CoinKite have produced the SATS card, a card the size of a credit card which can store Bitcoin and works great as a gift. CoinKite have just produced a limited edition gorgeous Bitcoin Standard SATS card, which carries the Bitcoin Standard logo, and you can get it from coinkite.shop slash Bitcoin Standard. Use the code Bitcoin Standard to get 5% off your purchase. This podcast is also brought to you by the Bitcoin Way, your professional Bitcoin IT team offering you personalized, secure, and comprehensive solutions for every step along your Bitcoin journey. The Bitcoin Way offer live concierge service to guide you with your Bitcoin cold storage, running your node, privacy best practices, inheritance planning, corporate strategy, and multi-sig solutions. They don't touch your coins, they guide you through the process of acquiring your coins and securing them. If you'd like to make your setup safer and more reliable, book a consult with them and see what they have to suggest. If you want to give someone the gift of Bitcoin, get them this professional service that will ensure they start off knowing exactly how to manage their coins and not lose them. Go to thebitcoinway.com and start Bitcoining more confidently. Hello, welcome to the Bitcoin Standard Podcast. Our guest today is Edward Stringham. Edward Stringham is the Shelby Column Davis Professor of American Business and Economic Enterprise at Trinity College. He's also the editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise and two books, and is the author of more than 75 journal articles, book chapters, and policy studies. His book, Private Governance, Creating Order in Economic and Social Life, is published by Oxford University Press, and he was recently the president of the American Institute for Economic Research. I've known Edward for many years, and I've uh, really enjoyed his work on anarchy and free market solutions for uh, defense and law and governance. 
And it's something that has helped me in writing my uh, book on uh, economics for the textbook. I relied on his uh, book because it articulates these arguments very well. And I thought it would be great to have you over, Edward, to talk about these things. So thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks. Good to see you. So uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you into Austrian economics and libertarianism and these kind of ideas? Um, why would an economist at a university believe in these kind of uh, um, debunked ideas as they always do? Well, I, I lucked out. I had uh, a good college uh, education, good set of professors, including many people interested in free markets. I enjoyed my first class in economics where we studied supply and demand, and then we got into uh, uh, Keynesian nonsense, I guess we could call it. And then the uh, next year, my professor said in Intermediate Macro, he was a real business cycle theorist, and he said, everything you learned in your previous classes, it's all wrong. And so I was very interested in the idea that there's these debated issues. And from there, I just started learning more and more. And then I uh, had another cool professor later named Walter Block. And I was very fortunate to uh, then go to George Mason University, study under some great professors, Peter Betke, Brian Kaplan, Walter Williams, James Buchanan, Leonard Lidjo, Gordon Tullock. So I've been very fortunate to be interested in the ideas and then to be surrounded by some fantastic professors to, to help me out a lot. Yeah, we've had uh, Walter Block uh, on this podcast before. It was a lot of fun uh, talking to him. He's, uh, he, he's a lot like Rothbard. He seems to me like this is what it would have been like uh, to know Rothbard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's definitely a fun guy and really a nice guy. He comes across as um, in his writings as kind of like, you know, aggressive. But he, in real life, he's he's one of the kindest people, very supportive person, and uh, very grateful to know him. Yeah, I know, absolutely uncompromising uh, when it comes to uh, writing, which I guess is something that can be said about your writing too. I mean, there are a lot of free market economists that will focus on you know, less controversial issues like deregulating uh, the market for um, particular foodstuffs or removing subsidies on some crops. These are the kind of things that pretty much everybody agrees on, but some people will kind of just say, well, you know, it's just politics and that's how it goes. But you don't have any of that. Well, I mean, you have some time for that, I presume, but mostly you go for the jugular. <laughs> You're not <laughs> wasting time. You're going straight for the, you know, the the, the most important monopoly function of the state, the quintessential function of the state, which is the provision of security and defense. So maybe give us a little bit of a background about why you chose to just go all the way out there. Because, you know, when you wrote that book, it's not something that is very common uh, before then. Only very few authors had gone that way, I'd say. Um, Rothbard, Hoppe, Bloch, uh, maybe a few others who had gone all the way to basically questioning the uh, state, the legitimacy of the state's monopoly on violence. So uh, what made you so radical? <laughs> Thanks. So I'm a big fan of Adam Smith. And at the time, I think he was really pushing our thinking, the world's thinking, and talking about the importance of markets, the importance of the invisible hand, the importance of uh, specialization, division of labor, and how we don't need the government and control 
of everything. And I think that lesson is very important and it applies to the provision of bread. It applies to the provision of housing. And then just thinking about it, well, what about some of the things that are so crucial to our lives and specifically things like security? And I think the most important things in our lives, we should especially be relying on markets, on voluntary provision, on competition, cooperation through markets, rather than coercive, violent government monopolies. So to apply the standard economic logic across the board and to say, when something is so important, it definitely should be provided by markets. And one of the cool things uh, about the world is it's this is not just a theoretical idea that I'm talking about. There's actually tons and tons of private provision of uh, security, private provision of dispute regulation, private prevention of disputes, private prevention of crime. So a lot of things that the government says they must do, that they have monopolized, are actually in reality right now and historically been provided by the free market. And that's what I would suggest creates order in economic life. It's private governance. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is, this is, uh, this is probably the most eye-opening thing about your book, which is that a lot of people think, uh, well, it's uh, libertarians who are going to talk about how the world can function without a state. And so immediately uh, you'd think this is going to be a bunch of theoretical um, hypotheticals about, you know, maybe we can do this and maybe we can do that. And here's how we'll treat crime. And here's how we'll deal with this kind of threat. And this is how courts might look like. But what you show in in, in your book is that this is actually, uh, it's already here. It's, it, we're not inventing something new. In fact, and this is, I think, the most startling fact of the book, I, I think it is mentioned in this book, it might be in Anarchy and the Law, but I think it is in this one, in Private Governance. There are more private police in the world than there are government police in the world. And this is, you know, the, the last data that I saw on this was, I think, around 2011. And at that point, they'd surveyed countries that had around two-thirds of the world's population. And in those countries, the ratio of private police to um, government police was two to one. So there was twice as many private policemen in for two-thirds of the world's population. That's for the part of the world that we have data for. And it includes China and India and the U.S. and a lot of very big countries. And so for the majority of people, they get to experience uh, two times as many private security forces than uh, police forces. And I think if you think of your own day, if you interact with private security more than you interact with the police, the reason you might not think of it as much is because generally, I I would say it's uh, usually a much more pleasant interaction because uh, private security uh, functions according to the rules of the market. They have property and they are trusted with securing property and they are accountable to their uh, bosses. They are accountable to the property owner and the property owner if they have you on their property, they likely want you for some reason there. You know, you're a customer, you're a friend. And so they are much more careful about dealing with customers than members of a monopoly. And it's uh, it's an analysis that applies everywhere. But once you start thinking of it this way, you start seeing it everywhere. Exactly. And there's varying degrees of uh, private security, private policing. There can be fully deputized 
private policing. So for example, Harvard University, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Mass General Hospital, all have fully deputized private police. They go through Massachusetts Police Academy, but they're hired by these private entities. So uh, those great bastions of free markets, Harvard and MIT, realize that when it comes time to protecting their students, they'd rather rely on private police. In addition to fully deputized private police, we have all sorts of uh, types of security guards, sometimes uh, armed security guards, oftentimes unarmed security guards. I have the good fortune uh, being here on campus today, of, uh, every day, being right across from the uh, campus, campus safety. And I can tell that they're, uh, at least in my experience, have always been very friendly. And their interest in uh, making sure the customers, in this case, the students here, are safe and, and um, comfortable because we've got a market relationship. The students here are paying the school money. And so bundled with the provision of education also comes a lot of other uh, what we could call public goods, which actually I'll, I'll critique that term in one minute. I think it's better classified as a club good, but they bundle things like uh, beautiful lawns, uh, gardens, private roads, private streetlights, and security. All those things are bundled along with the uh, cost of education. My professor, James Buchanan, uh, Nobel laureate from 1986, one of his arguments was we should get away from this thinking uh, binary of of uh, either something is a pure private good consumed by one person or a pure public good consumed by 8 billion people. Instead, think about things as club goods. Everything can be classified as a club good. An ice cream cone is a club good where the optimal number of people in that club is one person, but many things are in between. So a swimming pool at a apartment complex might be shared by 50 people. A swimming pool at a golf club might be shared by a thousand people. In uh, this case, we've got private security being shared by 3,000 people. And so just because something needs to be shared by multiple people does not need mean we need to assume that the government needs to monopolize it when in fact there's plenty of what we can think of as clubs, whether it's a for-profit club or a mutual aid society club that provide things privately independent of the government. Absolutely. I think it's uh, one of these uh, goods that is constantly mentioned as if you know, for some reason all of the usual analysis of the market just does not apply to it. And you know the the justifications can vary from one place to the other. Sometimes they say, "Well, there's externalities, or there's public goods, or um, it's non-excludable, it's non-rival. There's no way of uh, stopping people who pay from it, who don't pay for it, from benefiting from it." And I think the more that you dig into each one of these, the more you realize they are fallacious. They're completely fallacious. It's an economic good because ultimately, and I think this is really, um, this is what it all comes down to. Economic analysis is marginal. All economic analysis is marginal. And so you can think of defense and security as an abstract good in the aggregate. You know, is this place safe or is this place defended or is this place secure? But 
it, it never is in an economic sense an aggregate good. You can't just f- switch a button and you turn a city into a city that is defended and safe and secure. It's an issue that uh, is determined at the margin. How much capital and resources do you want to allocate to this? So how many policemen per street? How many policemen per household? Who gets a bodyguard? Ultimately, it's the, the question of allocation of resources in the case of security and defense is no different from the question of allocating resources in the production of phones or laptops or cars or any other consumer good. There is an infinite number of ways in which you can combine you know, the, the, the metals and the plastics and the fuels in order to make a car. And it's the job of the entrepreneur to calculate. You know, the, the, the famous Mises uh, economic calculation point, I think, is extremely powerful for all analysis of all goods. The, the entrepreneur's job is to calculate how to allocate the resources that he has to best satisfy the desires of the consumers. Mm-hmm. And so the only way that you could do that rationally is if you have prices. Prices are what allow you to perform the calculation. Without prices, there is no possibility for calculation. And defense is no different. You know, How do we decide where do we uh, allocate the police, where do we allocate the bodyguards, where do we allocate the bomb squad, where do we allocate um, large crowd control? This is a decision that needs to be made. And I think, you know, the more time goes by, the more we see how incapable monopolies are of handling this. In fact, you know, you look around, basically, I don't recall ever being in a bank that relied on the police for its security. They'll hire their own security. And I think that makes perfect sense. There's no reason why people who don't deal with the bank need to pay taxes to pay for a cop that secures the bank, which is only for the bank and the bank's customers. So the bank and the bank's customers should be the ones who pay for their own security. I think the same is true for like rock concerts or sports events. Why should the city or the government uh, tax everybody to protect the people who want to go to watch a uh, football game when, you know, they should be, that should come from their tickets, from the organizers of the game. They should be the ones who ensure the safety and security of their uh, attendees. And I think we're seeing this more and more. You know, you see private security become more and more dominant in organizing these things, right? Exactly. And even when you sometimes observe a uh, what would be called a, a government police officer at, for example, a stadium, in many cases, the stadium is actually hiring that person and or, or the bank might hire a government security officer. So even though that person is a sworn government officer in that capacity right there, they're working as a private uh, agent for for the bank or for the um, sports stadium or the concert stadium, so we can observe these people from afar and assume, oh, that must be financed by the government. But in many cases, it's it's privately financed. In New York City, there's a ton of different complexes which have what are called uh, p- patrol specials, and these are also deputized. Police, so they have to go through certain procedures. They're sworn in by the chief of government, chief of police, but they're hired by the a, a complex. So, for example, Co-op City is a very large city in Queens. I, I think it's got like I don't know, fifty or hundred thousand people. It's a it's a huge huge place, and they have their own deputized private police. When you see them from afar, they look 
identical, really, to government police. And so you wouldn't notice unless you had a, a keen eye to, to see what, what does the badge say or look at the finances of the Co-op City Homeowners Association to realize that these are being privately hired and funded. The syllabus for my new online economics course, Principles of Economics, is now available on safedean.com. The course will take place over 18 lectures, each based on one chapter from my new book, Principles of Economics, which will be available for free as an ebook for everyone registering for the course. Lectures will be released once every two weeks on Mondays, starting on the 25th of September, 2023, and will be available in video and audio format. Live discussion seminars will be held once a week on Thursdays at alternating time slots, 12 hours apart, to ensure learners can attend from all over the world. I'm happy to announce that I have set up my new publishing house and online bookstore, The Safe House, which will be publishing and delivering the best Bitcoin and Austrian economics books worldwide in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook formats. Go to thesafehouse.com to buy my latest book, Principles of Economics, as well as the Fiat Standard and the Bitcoin Standard. And now I'm also publishing Fiat Food, Matthew Lishak's amazing investigation into how inflation ruined our diet and health. And I'm also publishing Lynn Alden's Broken Money, her masterful exploration of the failures of the global financial system and how Bitcoin fixes it. This is a Bitcoiner's bookshop, so the books are printed in beautiful cloth hardcover made to last with an ice-colored dust jacket on top. Go to thesafehouse.com and get yours now. Or, you know, you'll probably tell because they're not abusing you and abusing their authority. <laughs> right, and that's the other thing. We think of things as like a, um, you know, oh, it's a public good. They're going to be, you know, working on our behalf. But, you know, we've seen this over the last few years especially, it's come to uh, the light in the media that government police are not always our friend. Government police are not always nice to people. And I think that uh, anti-police violence protests over the last few years have been a huge missed opportunity where people have been assuming, oh, you know, it's just a couple bad police officers who are acting out bad preferences. But I think if we take a bigger step back and think about how government monopoly in general is not there to serve the interests of people who are not them, I think that helps explain things. When a business is rude to their customers, the business loses money. When government police are rude to their customers, they don't lose money. When government police just don't do anything, in many sense, that might even be preferable for them to be out there uh, being mean to people. But when government police just, they don't do anything, stand around, they're not losing money either. So there's not a performance-based pay that we can see in the marketplace. The marketplace rewards producers based on satisfaction. In this case, it would be safety and satisfaction of the customers. And we just don't see that when you create a, a coercive monopoly, a unionized monopoly. A lot of conservatives are, are always harping about how unions are bad, it makes people unaccountable. And I agree with that. But then when it comes to unionized police officers, this logic just goes out the window and, oh, all of a sudden these unionized 
police officers are going to have everybody's best interest at heart all the time. And I just think that's a big assumption to make. Absolutely. Uh, when I would teach this, I'd always um, ask students in class, how many of you have ever seen a cop uh, abuse their uh, position? And quite a few of them would raise their hand. You know, um, they've uh, seen cops do bad things. It's it, it's not entirely uncommon. But then I'd ask them, how many of you have ever seen your university security guards abuse their position, uh, abuse their authority, or assault somebody, or harass uh, a woman, or whatever? And I've never had anybody raise their hand about any of that. I mean, it's amazing. You know, it's the same people. And usually, in many cases, you know, the police, once they retire, they go work as private security. But it's the incentives of the job. And, and as you said, it's very, it's, it's very accurate, in my opinion. On one job, if you're working as a private security guard, you have very clear job description. You have very clear criteria by which you're going to be judged. And there are others who will do your job. And if you don't do it at the cost that you're doing it, that, that, that you're supposed to be doing it for, then uh, you're not going to be, continue to be employed. So you'd lose your job. That is not the case with government police because, again, they are not financed willingly. They are financed through a monopoly. And the monopoly just ensures that, effectively, there is no real cost for abuse of position, for waste of resources, because ultimately there is no entrepreneur who's making the decision. You know, the private security guard for the bank, they, they, it, it's a business, and they, they look at all the other banks and all the other businesses, and they have a good idea about how much they should be paying for what kind of security, and if they don't get it, they have to hire somebody else. With police monopolizing this function, first of all, there's no alternative to compare to. So it's, it's not easy to be able to tell what any other entrepreneur would do. And there's no way you can fail. The, you know, the more you fail, the more money you get. In fact, that's what usually happens because the more you fail, the more likely you are to um, require more money to upgrade. And that's that's the vicious cycle in which bureaucracies get into, wherein their failure is used as an excuse for increasing financing, which just rewards failure more and incentivizes them to function in a more dysfunctional way. Exactly. So in terms of the average person, if you know something bad happens, even if it's a high priority event, the police are going to take usually minimum of 10 minutes to arrive. But in many cases, they will say, well, this is not a high priority event. So I studied uh, private policing in San Francisco. There's this group called the San Francisco Patrol Special Police, and they're hired typically by merchants, also by landlords, various groups like that. And if somebody is stealing from a store, causing a fight in a, in a bar, the police will just say, I'm sorry, we don't have time to go there. And in many cases, they just will not respond at all. So that's a case of the police existing, government police exist, but they're actually, as you said, at the margin, they're not doing anything. I was in, uh, <laughs> spend way more time in Penn Station traveling in and out than I prefer. And they have a lot of government police there, but there's a lot of, um, I'll just say, unruly uh, uh, vagrants who go into these the sushi places and they'll just come and like stuff uh, their pockets with sushi is disgusting i have to say i'm sorry to say and the police will be like literally 20 feet away and there's just nothing that anybody does 
it's a completely lawless situation, even though there's uh, police within within seconds. Uh, in general, if people live in a, a rural area, the police are not going to come and, and arrive and, and, and stop a crime in in seconds. It's going to take them minutes to get there. And even in a bigger city with a high priority priority event typically takes 10 minutes. So the idea that they're around to be helping us out all the time, it's just simply an assumption. Uh, we can contrast that, though, with, uh, as you talk about, a bank uh, security officer, whether armed or unarmed. They're there. They're being paid by the uh, the bank. Actually, they're being paid by the bank customers, combination of those two. Everybody's there to be safe, and it just works. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, um, they're... Um they're profit motivated at every point in time, and this is this is what it comes down to. I think there's a, the biggest misconception that people have about um, the free market ideas. Uh, sometimes is that uh, it's uh, you know imagine if you went to a Soviet farmer in the 1970s and you told him we need to abandon the uh, we need to abolish the Soviet potato uh, planning board, they'll think you want to ban potatoes, and he'll tell you no, I love potatoes. Without the Soviet planning board. For potatoes, we're just not going to have potatoes. Why do you hate potatoes? Who will <laughs> make potatoes for us if we didn't have the Soviet planning board? And this is, I think, the point that you communicate very well in the book, which is, look, nobody's saying defense shouldn't exist. Nobody's saying we're going to live in this you know, utopia where everybody's peaceful and nobody does anything wrong. The idea is that you want to bring market discipline to the process of defense and security and also law and, or, law and order as well. And that, I think, is another big one that people have a struggle with understanding because you generally can only see those things functioning as a monopoly, which is the case of the potato farmer in uh, the Soviet Union. They've never seen a free market in potatoes. But I think, you know, the, the, the first step is to just look around you. It's not a monopoly. It's a monopoly in that one uh, one part, uh, one provider of security manages to finance itself through taxation and inflation without having to actually earn its earnings. But that body, realistically, if you look at it, and a great quote by Murray Rothbard, he says, we can look at the way in which the police and the government uh, security forces persecute crimes against the state versus crimes against citizens. And we can see where the, their priorities lie. So, you know, uh, if a politician lies... That's par for the course. If if an individual does something against the government, you know, you look at the prosecution of people like Assange or Snowden, that's got all of the highest levels of law enforcement going after him. Even though some politicians have done things that are uh, much more uh, egregious, they don't get the same treatment. And the bureaucracies that fail, you know, the, the Pentagon that keeps failing to pass its audits, they don't get these, this kind of treatment. The police essentially, ultimately, like everybody, has to answer to its paymaster, and its paymaster is politics, its paymaster is government. And so therefore, I think a, a more accurate way of understanding the market for security is that the state finances its own security with its security forces, whose main 
purpose is to protect the state. And I think, you know, this is generally viewed as a hallmark of a failed banana republic, that the government uh, security forces are there to protect the state, not the people. But I would suggest to people to look around and see that it's actually pretty common in most of the world. And for individual citizens, you know, if you want security, you get it yourself, you pay for it yourself. Um, you either secure an arm yourself or you join a service that provides with security, you hire security guards. And I think uh, realistically, getting rid of the government monopoly security is not going to compromise uh, most people's safety, I would imagine. And in, in fact, imagine how much safer people in Chicago could be if they could keep all of their taxes and all of the money they lose through inflation and spend that on hiring their own security. I mean, I think if you just took all of that money, took the taxes and you just gave them to people, everybody could have their own bodyguard. You know, <laughs> a third of the population of Chicago will be working as bodyguards. And that's the problem of crime solved right there. I mean, just think about how much money people pay in terms of taxes every year. You know, the, the, the enormous trillions of dollars that the government spends. And the U.S. government, you know, it spends hundreds of billions on the military all over the world. And the streets of Chicago are not safe. It's astonishing when you think about it. You know, there's military bases all over the world. Every single nook and cranny of the planet has got a U.S. military base. And yet children in Chicago can't just go walk to the grocery store uh, half a mile away because the streets of the city are very dangerous. Yes. Yeah, so uh, 19th century author, I'm sure you love him too, Lysander Spooner, has this great quote where he says, he says, at least the highway robber has a decency after he steals your wallet to let you go on your way. And rather than following you around and telling you that he is protecting you. So in many cases, the government police unfortunately exists to actually extract money from you. So the famous case of Ferguson, Missouri, a few years ago, there's lots of uh, violence and unrest. It turns out that the government officials explicitly told the police, hey, we need to get more revenue and can you ramp up enforcement of various fines, various tickets? And so they created a very antagonistic relationship with the public where the police were not there to protect the public. They were there to extract resources from the public through various phony type little fines. Oh, you've done this. You've done that. In the country of Georgia, my friends report to me that the police, right after the end of the Soviet Union, they were just they were just stick up artists, and they would go around, you know, pull people over and ask for bribe. And after a while, Saakashvili said, "We can't continue with this," and so he fired basically all of the police. It was done in stages, but he fired all the police. And my friend's report, actually, it was a lot safer because you didn't have to worry about these stick-up artists coming around and pulling you over to extract resources from you. So you've got a situation where, in theory, you know, we've all been brainwashed to believe, as you said, with the potato farming, oh, well, we, we need food, so therefore X. Well, what is the X? In many cases under the Soviet Union, well, the, the state needs to provide the potatoes, a provision of potatoes, otherwise it's going to be chaos. In modern times, we've all been brainwashed to believe, well, the government needs to provide uh, uh, streetlights, the government needs to provide security. 
Well, I, I, I encourage people to walk around and just notice there are so many, so many examples of private streetlights wherever you go, shopping malls, in front of a private building, and any high rise you see, there's going to be private, mostly private streetlights. Any uh, college campus you go to, there's private streetlights. And then similarly, we've got the same thing with security. It doesn't always need to be people with a badge. It doesn't always need to be people who are armed. Jane Jacobs famously argued that one of the main determinants of crime is eyes on the street. She said you want an active city with lots of people interacting rather than these kind of weird barren places, which we can now think of things like government housing projects. That was a very unnatural government experiment, which led to a lot of crime. But instead, if you have a setup where there's just lots of people walking around, uh, coupled with people who might not even be armed, you can have, there are these various types of people called security ambassadors in, in different parts of New York City, and they just walk around. They don't have, they don't have guns. It depends where you are. I, I just walked by the New York Stock Exchange and noticed that the New York Stock Exchange security, they do have guns. But in many cases, uh, simply having eyes on the street, as Jane Jacobs described, is all we need. We don't need these uh, highly militarized tank units, SWAT teams for simple things like making sure that uh, an average street is okay. When you go into a uh, an office complex in a big city like New York, you always have to sign in with security. Those people, as far as I know, are not armed. But just simply knowing who's coming in, checking IDs, keeping track of people, that creates a lot of rules and order that you don't need with a big, big bazooka. Yes, absolutely. And the typical pattern you see here is that in many times, what is invoked as the reason for why we need a government intervention is itself uh, the result of a government intervention. So you mentioned Jane Jacobs and her work on urban areas and cities. I think it's very Hayekian because it describes how uh, these um, urban planners come up with ideas about how the, city, uh, how the city should work and how the different parts of the city should be connected and how citizens should move around. And so, you know, they draw up plans and they confiscate land and they build highways and they tear up communities, which was, you know, small streets that were crowded. And then somebody gets a grand vision where, you know, if we just get rid of this neighborhood and then put a highway through the middle of it, then we're going to have more GDP or something or the other. And so, you know, you see, you see this in the US in particular, where the roads just proliferate enormously quickly. And it's because government can buy roads, can buy land for roads at a lower price than the market cost. And so that leads to overinvestment in roads, which means a lot of land that on the market would have been used for housing, schooling, work, shopping, ends up being um, taken over as roads. And then because of that, because so much of the surface area of the city is taken up in roads, the sense of community in the city dies. There is no community. The streets become empty. And then you need a car to get around everywhere. And then the streets are empty everywhere. And so this this would not really be a, um, a problem in, in the traditional sense of cities where they would grow and emerge organically and spontaneously and people voluntarily agree to different arrangements. And there are communities where people can um, hold each other accountable in terms of different behavior. 
things were much safer back then because we had this eyes on the street in this community. Yeah, I live in Hartford and they definitely botched the city in the post-World War II period. They came up with this idea, let's encircle the downtown on basically three sides with highways and the formerly bustling residential areas just got cleared out and it's a ghost town. I can report as one of the few residents of downtown Hartford, uh, it is not uh, it is not a thriving city. And my cobbler, who uh, a few years ago reported that he was in the same street since the 1950s, he said it used to be really amazing. There were all these people living in downtown. It was a mixed-use community. And now what we have is these unaccountable bureaucrats, these Robert Moses types who uh, at one point famously was going to put a a multi-lane highway through Soho in New York City. And people said, no, this is is not a good idea. This is going to destroy the neighborhood. It's going to destroy the city, actually. It's going to make it less walkable. And so you've got these unaccountable central planning mindsets. They come up with ideas. They do a bad job at it. Things get heavily bureaucratized, and then there's they don't face any downturn, downside. They don't have to return taxpayers' money for future residents of New York City or, or, or Hartford for, for ruining the city. And that's really the big problem with central planning is there's not the profit and loss mechanism. If the central planner for the, for the zoning does a bad job, or in, in the case of, of the policing does a bad job and the city becomes less safe, people don't lose money. Instead, as you alluded to a few minutes ago, in many cases, oh, there's a big problem. There's a, there's a crime wave. We need more, more government police. And if you look at the budgets of police, we can assume, oh, they're there working to do a great job all the time. In many cases, we can think about economics as considering how people have, in some cases, self-interest when making decisions, and that includes unions. Unions are notoriously uh, into negotiating high wages, good retirement packages that benefit the people in charge, and it's not necessarily aligned with the average person, the average user of safety. So in San Francisco, I studied that there's something called pension spiking, where the government police can retire earning 90% of their peak year earnings. So what they'll do is they'll coast along and then maybe they'll get some high paying job the year before they retire. And now starting at age 50, they retire for the rest of their life earning 90% of their peak year salary. So it's really kind of an amazing set of outcomes that people who can make choices at the expense of the general public, at the expense of taxpayer, at the expense of safety, don't have to pay the cost. The taxpayer has to pay the cost. Yeah, it's a nice gig if you can get it, but uh, (laughs) I don't recommend getting it. I think it sounds a lot nicer in practice, in theory, than it is in practice. I think uh, I'd, uh, I'd strongly advise my children about trying to do something like this, where you're getting a job where, you know, you get obscene benefits that you don't really wouldn't really get on the free market because 
I still think you're better off learning to be productive on the free market because then you're, you, you, you'll maximize your earning potential a lot more than anything you can get by this. And I think a lot of these pensions, you know, you see what's happening with inflation, what's been happening with the bond market over the last year. A lot of these things looked a lot more attractive on paper 10, 15 years ago than they do today. So a lot of the people that uh, took on those jobs 20 years ago and are about to retire right now, it sounded a lot nicer than than it does right now. I think inflation is a serious problem here. And I think there's always the risk that eventually you're lending to an entity that is not very financially and fiscally responsible. And if you have liabilities from them, I mean, they a lot of people have this idea that's status brainwashing, that the government is always going to be all right because they can print money. Well, you know, they'll be all right, but you won't. And in fact, the way that they will be all right is that they're going to screw over the people who have entitlements and the bondholders and the currency holders. Um, so just because they'll be all right doesn't mean that uh, you will. Exactly. Like any Ponzi scheme, it's good for the early recipients, but eventually people can run into problems. And in the cases of these pensions, specifically in California, that's one I've studied a lot. It was going really well for a while, but now they're putting these tremendous liabilities on the taxpayers. They're having these very unrealistic sets of assumptions about growth of what's going to go into the um, pension funds. And in many cases, this is not they're not performing anywhere close to their historical assumptions, and that's going to be leading to an unsustainable outcome in the long run. And I was really interested to read recently in Barron's that uh, certain federal government bonds, long-term bonds, are now actually downgraded. They're now AA minus. They're not considered risk-free rates of return anymore, which was an assumption in many standard economics textbooks that government bonds are the standard by which we say this is a risk-free debt instrument. Well, actually, maybe that's not the case. In the 1970s in New York City, they were going bankrupt. And we see around the world, there's plenty of less developed nations where the government bonds are, are not, not good. You should not be owning these things. And it's becoming increasingly clear that even in a country like the United States, we couldn't even meet the uh, entry requirements to join something like the, the European Union because our, our debt to GDP ratio was too high. The government has taken on way too much debt and under certain circumstances, they, they might be able to pay it back. But uh, in all likelihood, they're going to be paying it back at a devalued rate for certain, 10% less <laughs> just this year alone. And we, we can figure out using math what that means over a sustained period. And in certain cases, I wouldn't be surprised. My, my colleague uh, from San Jose State, Jeffrey Rogers Hummel, says he, he thinks that it's so unsustainable that there's going to be actually selective default in the future. So the main lesson for all of this is just because government is doing it, just because there's a monopoly involved, doesn't mean it's economically sound, economically savvy. And that's one of the main lessons from economics. From all levels of society, markets encourage restraint, encourages thrift, encourages responsible behavior. 
when people don't have to pay the price of making bad decisions through the government and they can charge their uh, follies to other people, then we're going to see more follies. And that is, I think, a, a lesson that applies to all areas of what government does. Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I think that's the case. We have a question, Mauro, uh, in the chat is saying, in the stadium case, who's going to defend citizens and pay the damages that a group of people often do just out of frustration? How do you answer that one? Who will protect us from the hooligans if it wasn't the government? Oh, so in San Francisco, for example, historically, a, a stadium could hire these people called the patrol special police. It was built into the cost of a ticket and you just do it. In modern times, the government of San Francisco has, it's kind of a somewhat of a scam where they've got this overtime program for off-duty workers who let them provide services for private entities for money. So we can think of it as a semi-private arrangement except for funneling the business to government people. But depending on the entity, such as stadium, they would have to hire off-duty government police to provide those services. In those cases, it's, it's, they're acting as private police. They still have uniform of the government police, but it is being paid for by San Francisco Giants or whatever stadium. Now, I know in uh, certain other countries, there's soccer hooligans. I don't really follow that stuff, but I think that that's a major problem. And in a case like that, we need to be figuring out ways to have solutions. And from what I can tell, just from afar, it doesn't look like the government's doing a very good job. No, I don't think so. I think um, uh, private policing should do this. And I think, you know, one one important point, which you and people like Hans-Hermann Hoppe and Mario Rothbard mentioned, which is that if we did have more of a free market in security and defense, this stuff would likely get baked into uh, insurance as well. You'd see that insurance companies are likely to get into this stuff. So the answer... I guess in a in a truly free society would be that you know the insurance company that has to cover all of those things is going to go out there and figure out how to stop those hooligans and that might involve you know putting in an extra number of people around the game that the insurance company pays for it might involve surveillance technology so that they can know exactly who is causing the damage so that they can prosecute them there are a lot of possibilities and I think what is needed in order to do this is more free market forces acting in a way that allows property owners to do what they want. I mean, it's 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 just because it happens after a football game is no different from any other kind of assault. It's uh, it's assault and it's a violation of property. The, the way around it is um, private uh, policing, figuring out, and insurance. Insurance, I think, will have to take on a more proactive role in ensuring the safety of their uh, customers. Because, you know, if you're hurt, if your property is damaged, if your stuff is stolen, the insurance company has to pay. So they have the biggest incentive to secure uh, society. And so I think we'll see this kind of uh, vertical integration of the services of uh, defense, security, and insurance together, just because it makes a lot of sense for them to all be paid by the same person. Yeah, I live in Hartford, which is one of the cities that innovated insurance, and we've got a lot of old companies. The Hartford Steam Boiler 
insurance company. And in the 19th century, they would provide insurance for ships and with steamboats and steam engines. And that is a very important service, but those ships could get damaged very easily if you don't maintain the steam engines properly. And so one of their innovations they did was they actually would provide a system of private inspectors to go out to the boats and say, okay, we will insure the ship as long as you're following best practices to make sure that the engine is a proper engine, it's well-maintained. And so by putting a price on this potential problem, you're now having the insurance company assume and manage risk. And so that's one of the main advantages of private markets, specifically private governance, is you're putting prices on problems. And once there's a price on a problem and you pay somebody to man assume and manage that risk, they're going to come up with best practices to reduce problems. And we can see that in things like payment processors, uh, your credit card assumes risk on your behalf. And so they now are being paid by you to reduce the likelihood of fraudulent transactions on your account. And so to think about things in terms of marginalism and prices, thinking about how we can put a cost on a problem and now figure out how we can minimize that problem, that's going to be good for everybody. It's going to be good for best practices in the payment processing space. It's good for best practices in 19th century steam boilers. And we could think about that being applied to modern industry or events where there's problems associated with crime or uh, stealing from a store. To the extent that we can minimize those problems, that's good for everybody. Yeah. Camilo has a question for you. He says, how do we move from a public police to a private one? Even though the state might tolerate private security agencies, it will always enforce the monopoly on violence. So I think that there's varying degrees of markets throughout the world. In many third world countries, people <laughs> report to me that sometimes the police are just considered local petty criminals. And so you have depending on the country, a lot of gated communities already, gated communities within gated communities. And I'm not saying that's ideal. It's probably uh, indicative of certain problems already in some of those societies. But we have private policing to varying degrees. And the question is, how can we allow more of it? I've been studying recently, as I mentioned, some of the examples in New York City. There's various private neighborhoods which have private security, actually fully deputized private police, and to just think about ways that we can expand that. Battery Park City is a part of Manhattan in the very bottom left in uh, lower Manhattan. And they have, it's a governmentally owned but semi-private setup where people pay ground rent into what's called the Battery Park City Corporation. And some of that ground rent historically went to hire the equivalent of police. They were actually, in this case, they were some type of park ranger police. And then in the last few years, they've decided to change that to be, and they had arrest powers. They've now changed that to be unarmed security ambassadors. 
And so this is an example that's not fully private, but it has elements of privateness. And I think we can start thinking about various ways that those things could be implemented, even without going to complete privatization. We already have a lot of privatization. And let's think about ways we can implement some of the existing standards in more areas. Yeah, and I think uh, one other thing I would say to Camilo is that realistically this is happening because the state security forces are just becoming more and more resource constrained all over the world. You see this pretty much everywhere. Police everywhere are complaining about we don't get enough funding, there's too much crime, there's too much on our plate, we don't get enough protection, we're facing too much danger. And so you see that the uh, threshold for what gets reported to the police is continuously rising. If you walked into a police station to report the fact that somebody stole your wallet or your purse or your phone, in most cities today, the police will just look at you and smile and try and get rid of you quickly. And like, you know, you can waste our time for half an hour filing a report, but we're not going to go around and uh, play James Bond on the streets of New York City to try and find your wallet. Um, they obviously don't have the time for that. There's too much of it going on. You could perhaps make the argument that the reason that they don't have the time for it is because they let it go. Uh, when you let it go, you keep getting more of it. So now you have an avalanche of it. So maybe you know if they'd been stricter initially, they might have been able to stem the tide because if you just had only a few, then you could go after them. But I think in large cities, it's difficult and and in, in reality, I think the more you see uh, how the police operate, the more you realize really it is it, it is for the regime. Like it's, it's political. You look at how active the police are for going after any kind of political dissent um, versus how they go after uh, crime. You know, people who are uh, suffering from serious crime problems don't get as much of the police help that they can get. And I think this is going to inevitably lead to just... Uh, a tacit acceptance by the state that people are going to have to police themselves and finance their own police and people who are going to have valid property claims are going to be able to get away with having police on these things. So I think we're we're witnessing the monopoly really break down, but not to sound too wishy-washy, but I really think this this is a battle that is fought in people's minds. I think if we live in a world in which, if you live in a society in which 99% of people believe that the potato industry needs to be monopolized, there's no way around it. You're going to end up with a giant mess in the potato market. That's it. If everybody believes we need to have a monopoly handling the potatoes, no matter how good the people in charge of the monopoly, no matter how well-meaning, it's going to go bad because you don't have a free market in potatoes. And I think the same is true with defense and security. So it's a matter of people realizing the fact that the state is not out there to protect us. We need to look out for ourselves and building uh, independent and parallel structures for uh, the goods that they need, for the um, security that they need, and for all of the things that the government uses and is an excuse. My my mentality hack for people of how to think of the state is really just um, don't think that any of your money that you're paying to the state gets you anything. The only thing that it gets you is that it keeps you out of jail. That's all that you pay your taxes for. Taxes are the prices that you pay to stay out of jail and uh, count that you're not getting anything from it. I think this is, this, is, this is a mentality that I have and I think a lot of people I know think that way in that, look, I'll, I'll pay the taxes that I have to pay just because I don't want to get into jail, but I'm not expecting anything in return and I need to provide everything else for myself and not have to think about what the state can give me. 
That's right. And I'll give you another cool example where the government clearly was not helping. And this was in early uh, days of San Francisco after the gold rush. The uh, state uh, was not really in existence. There was a couple people around, but not doing much. And after a while, there were these criminal gangs that would just go around and break into bars and uh, smash things and threaten to burn certain neighborhoods. And so people banded together to create, which still exists in a different form. It's now called the San Francisco Patrol Special Police, where they specifically stated, we cannot rely on the government to solve our problems. So we're going to have our, our, own, our own solution. In uh, subsequent decades, the government did create a police force. And so there were these two police forces operating side by side, government police and what are now called patrol special police. Uh, but the government was still not on your side. In many cases, they were very corrupt. In one particular case, they killed a prominent businessman who had a newspaper who had published something negative about a politician. The politician killed this guy. And so they had what uh, was referred to at the time, a businessman's revolution. And they created what they called it the vigilance committee. And they said, we're not going to tolerate government uh, corruption. And they had various things. My favorite example of gun control that I support is they implemented gun control against the government officials. And uh, the result of this is uh, government spending went down uh, by a lot and uh, things didn't go so well uh, in the year 2023, but there are still some vestiges of the San Francisco Patrol Special Police uh, in, in existence today. Well, so well, that brings us to the uh, next topic I wanted to talk about, which is judiciary. How does uh, the court system work in a free market? I mean, clearly we need a monopoly on law. We can't have everybody uh, set up their own court and then um, declare their own law and uh, uh, give people death sentences, right? <laughs> right. So uh, I'm glad we, we started with the actually, I would say the difficult case, which is security. I would say the easy case is things like dispute resolution. Right now, all around the world, but I'll comment a little bit more on America since I know more about that, is it's extremely common to have in your contract an arbitration uh, clause, a alternative dispute resolution clause. So if I have a dispute with my cell phone company, or if I have a dispute with my stockbroker, or if I have a dispute with my credit card company, it could take a very long time, be very costly, go through government courts. And so alternatively, when we sign a contract between me and my stockbroker, me and my uh, cell phone carrier, me and my credit card company, it says, in the event of a dispute, it will be handled by the following sets of procedures, which are uh, private. So in many cases, an arbitration clause will specify the venue. It might say, we're going to have this dispute handled by the, historically it was called National Association of Securities Dealers, NASD, which is where we get the name NASDAQ. That could have said, we're going to have this dispute 
solved by New York Stock Exchange regulation. Those two private entities have since merged to be called now FINRA, which is somewhat private, somewhat governmentally mandated private self-regulatory organization. But that organization will have people who know about the securities industry look into the matter and resolve the disputes. In the case of a business transaction. I lived in Silicon Valley for six years and one of my friends, why she worked for one of the major dispute resolution firms, which is called JAMS, which was Judicial Arbitration Mediation Services. It's now um, just called JAMS only. And what they would do, these large um, firms, these high-tech firms didn't want to risk going before a judge that didn't understand anything about business, didn't understand anything about technology. So instead they would say, please, if there's a dispute, we're going to have it held by in jams is the venue. And then it's going to be experts. And that costs a lot more money to finance this privately. However, they're saving a lot of money rather than explaining really basic things to a government bureaucrat who doesn't understand anything, you want to pay extra to have it done by somebody who who understands things. In the case of a credit card dispute or cell phone dispute, it would just be too costly to go to government court. And so it's much more efficient to have it go through a private tribunal. And these things can be done in many cases solved very quickly. And the last quick one I'll mention is even when we're not contracting with a third party private tribunal, in many cases, a service that we sign up with has the tribunal built in. And a couple of the examples that a lot of us know about are things like eBay. We know ahead of time that the party what we're dealing with has a rating. So that's the first line of defense. There's this reputation mechanism built into the system. But if things don't go well, it might be something that's just as an error. If things don't go well, I can call up the eBay corporation and say, hello, this seller is not responding to my emails and please look into it. And so this this happened to me. I, I ordered some ties on eBay And one of them turned out to be a a Paisley tie. And I just can't stand, I can't stand Paisley ties. It's the worst thing in the world. And I contacted the seller and said, hello, Mr. Seller, you sent me one of the wrong ties. And he didn't respond. I don't think that person is evil. I don't think he's going to hell. But he was too busy to deal with this small problem. And so I called up eBay and actually wrote eBay on their online system. I think they looked into it. They saw that he had not responded to any of my requests. And then instantly the money got transferred to my account. So when you opt into a venue, you choose ahead of time what the dispute resolution process is going to be. Yeah, and I think... Uh, this this obviously makes a lot of sense. Uh, a company like eBay has an interest in protecting cons- consumer, uh, customers. 
because you know if you came into them and you bought this and you didn't get what you asked for well then you're not going to come back and so even though they, this guy might cost them some money the fact that they can do this all the time to guarantee the customers will get their money back means they can um, it, it continues to be profitable so Again, if it is a good, if it is wanted, if people want this thing, people value um, arbitration, then um, others will figure out a way to do it. And I think you know, it's uh, it, it's obviously very true that governments don't usually have the experts that can keep up with all these enormous uh, specialized industries and all their laws and regulations. And I would argue, you know, why should they? Why should taxpayer dollars be spent on uh, teaching government agents how to arbitrate eBay disputes? Um, it should be something that eBay users figure out on their own. And I think the internet is really bringing this question forward very uh, clearly. I mean, you know, uh, the, the, the amount of commerce that we can do on the internet today is a lot more than what we could do 30 years ago before the internet was a huge thing. And uh, 30 years ago, these kind of activities, the state had a lot more of an iron grip on them. You know, you, you, you had to report your local lemonade stand and you had to abide by all these regulations. Well, the internet is showing how all of these things can be done. You know, you, you can have a garage sale effectively online. You can uh, sell all kinds of different things. And there are mechanisms for making this happen with very little recourse to violence, to uh, government entities. And as these things proliferate, you know, go back to Camilo's question on how do we uh, take this monopoly out of the state, I think it's just it, the, the grip of the state is loosening because a lot more is going online, a lot more doesn't even require the state to intervene. And I think this is one of the most amazing things about the way that Bitcoin works is that it operates an international monetary system that anybody can use to send money anywhere in the world without needing to resort to the institutions of the government. And so you can't go to the government and tell them, hey, um, my transaction uh, didn't go through or somebody took my private keys. They have no authority over a Bitcoin. They can't help you with it. And there's nothing they can do. And I think that's a good thing. You should just learn to handle your own private keys. And if you don't like that, then maybe Bitcoin is not for you. Yeah, there's so many great examples. I just completed some research on a now defunct marketplace called Open Bazaar, and they are now using this technology in some uh, some newer competitors. But in this case, they were using a combination of uh, what some people would classify as smart contracts, but basically two of three escrow. It was like eBay, except for there was no eBay corporation. You could have two people do a peer-to-peer -peer transaction and the money is held in a two of three uh, escrow wallet. And so if two of the three parties sign off to say that the transaction was good, the funds get transferred to the seller. If one of the parties, specifically the buyer, says no, I didn't get the goods, they then would call in a third party, uh, a what they call the moderator, I'll, I'll use the term mediator, which is a little bit less confusing. But this third party private judge could come in and say, all right, let's look into this. Is there a proof of delivery? And then the mediator would then decide, okay, we're going to give the money back to the buyer, 
or going to give the money to the seller or any number of other choices. And so these are some cool examples of things that enable transactions across international borders that historically there was just no enforcement options for, for things like that. If, if I make a transaction with somebody in a different country, I can't just call up the government of China and say, hi, so-and-so did not deliver these goods to me. The government of China is going to say, what are you talking about? And plus, we don't even have a court system in English. So in most cases, most transactions, the value of the good is far less than the cost of going to the court system. And so we have to start thinking about whether the court system is really underpinning commerce. And I'll suggest that it's not. Instead, we've got lots and lots of private solutions through payment processors, through eBay, through PayPal, through uh, American Express. All of these different groups connect people in various different ways. Sometimes there's a central intermediary in the case of PayPal. Sometimes it can be decentralized in the case of these platforms that are building on smart contracts. But private people are figuring out ways to solve things without relying on the government because government courts can't get us our money back. You lose money on the internet, you're not getting your money back. That's just the bottom line. Yeah. Uh, Clement is asking, well, what about criminal charges? How do we achieve fair hearings against criminals in private courts? So that's definitely, I would say, one of the most difficult sets of questions. And I think probably um, some of the better solutions, and even what I'm about to mention has a lot of problems, and in many cases, it's been co-opted by the government. But I do think conceptually, theoretically, the college model is interesting to think about. You've got a community, which is a proprietary community. Historically, when people became a member of Oxford University or Cambridge University, they matriculated and became a citizen of those universities. And by doing that, you're opting into a judicial system. And I think that's one way that we can think about people solving disputes among each other, among peers. If, if my stereo, uh, my neighbor's stereo is too loud, I don't call 911, but I could call the resident advisor. Uh, if the resident advisor can't solve the problem, he can call campus safety. And then there are some issues that we can think about, the more complicated ones of you know criminal disputes. I, I think it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to be thinking about some of the things that are handled by some private colleges to think about that being applied in a larger scale uh, within community. Yeah, I think um, the way that I would think of it is that ultimately you would want to be part of a system that would protect you from something like this. And so therefore you have an interest in agreeing to being part of an extended order wherein certain punishments are doled out for certain practices. In other words, you agree to be part of this, say, uh, private security provider, which is going to charge you a monthly fee to protect you. 
and you know they'll pay out insurance in case you suffer uh, from damage. If you die, they pay your family uh, your life insurance. If you suffer from damage to your property, they'll pay that. So it's in their interest to ensure security. And the way that they ensure security is that they get you to sign a piece of paper that says, well, I agree that in the case of being found guilty by this uh, company's court system, of any this kind of particular crime, I would face this kind of punishment. So I think that can be implemented, and I can see how essentially that is that's what we think of as the function of the state. But in a world in which people begin to see how free markets can provide these things more satisfactorily, it won't sound so absurd that yeah, I'm going to join this organization, which is going to give me a deal. You know, basically they'll keep me safe. They'll charge me say one hundred dollars a month. They'll keep me safe if something happens to me. They'll pay this much money to my family. But if I were to kill somebody, they get to lock me up in jail. I, I don't see why that wouldn't uh, be likely. What do you think? I'll, I'll give you another example, which I find really interesting. This is from a thousand years ago in England. The legal system was, before the Norman invasion, largely decentralized and largely private. And it was basically based on restitution over retribution. And by restitution, I'm referring to if two people get into a dispute and something bad happens, the victim receives money rather than just punishing the offender. So not all the time can we make the victim whole, but to the extent that we can, restitution is a way to solve problems in modern legal terminologies. We would call that a tort rather than a punishment. We're going to say, here, you get this money from the offender If the offender doesn't pay, his uh, association would have to be responsible for this. Over time, the government, after the Norman invasion came in, the king said, oh, this is interesting. And you know what? In addition to paying restitution against the victim, why don't you pay some restitution to me? Because you also violated the king's peace. And over time, they started to say, you can't go through this completely private system. It has to go through the government system because you have to be paying money to the king to violate the king's peace. And eventually they said all the money goes to the king. So the evolution of what we now call criminal law in England uh, a thousand years ago was actually created to create revenue for the government. It was not, it, it did not exist to to make the victim whole. It did not exist to solve problems in society. I'll give you a a small anecdote from 15 years ago. My car got stolen. Everything was fine. It was recovered uh, in perfect condition for, for whatever reason. But the thief, he was such a, he was so careful that he even would take my detachable faceplate off of the car and put it in the glove box. So the stereo wouldn't get stolen. Um, But by the time I got my car back, it was in perfect condition. My only loss was $200 of rental car that I had to use during this interim period. And uh, later the police called me like, oh, you know, we're going to prosecute this person, da, 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 da. And 
to me, I really uh, would have been more ha- happier if I just got $200 back. The fact that this guy's now languishing in jail for however long, uh, that personally, I'm not sure, you know, how, how does that affect me? In fact, I've got to be paying for that. And so something like a criminal charge could have actually been considered tort and just compensating the victim rather than punishing the offender. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is a very powerful point in your book and in uh, many of the anarchist literature, which is that the law is not imposed by the state. The state does not create the concept of law. Law, natural law, something that exists in all societies. Every society has an idea that murder is wrong, theft is wrong, and they don't impose the laws. They get their legitimacy by appealing to legality, by appealing to natural law, by saying, we will stop theft and murder and we will uh, punish people who do them. And we're going to allow peaceful, prosperous, peaceful people to prosper and to well, work productively with each other. So law supersedes the state and states come and go, but the law remains the same. The, the, the idea that murder is wrong will survive all of the states that are currently in existence. I think there's a good analogy here with money in that many people think that the state declares what money is, but that's not true. The market declares what money is, and then the state, if it wants its own liabilities to be accepted as money, if it wants to be able to uh, engage in the market, if it wants to have any kind of presence on a market, it needs to go along with what the market chooses as money. I think the same is true with the law, and I think just because we haven't seen how a free market could evolve in law, legality, and crime, and punishment, and defense uh, does not mean that it is not possible. I think it's, uh, it's entirely feasible. Yeah, and I'll give you another cool example. In my research, I look at the evolution of stock markets, and it turns out in various countries and various centuries, they've all evolved in somewhat of a similar way. Now, they were influenced by each other, but the fact that Amsterdam in 17th century, London in 19th century, New York in 20th century, all had these stock exchanges emerging out of private clubs where the brokers got together and they said, the laws of the land, they explicitly said this in London, the laws of the land are not accustomed and equipped to deal with what happens if people default in a stock transaction, what we would now call a forward transaction, where they would have quarterly settlements. Somebody would make a transaction, and if they didn't show up at settlement date, what do we do? Well, the private bodies said, let's figure out what's fair, let's figure out what's good for the market, what's good for each other. And so they said, okay, you've got to deliver what you owe. That's that's the basics. And if you don't deliver it, uh, what are we going to do? So the London Stock Exchange uh, before that was called, I was, I was actually a coffee house, Jonathan's Coffee House. And they said, let's create a private club. They eventually called it the Stock Subscription Room. They then later called that the Exchange. And now they've adopted as their motto, my word is my bond they realized that we need to have rules that everybody can agree to, what's fair, what's good for the market. And those emerged completely independent 
of government. So the government didn't create the law. The government didn't create the advanced stock market. The market created the rules of the market. Absolutely. I think it's true when you look at you know the, the corporate laws that emerged with the birth of capitalism in England. British law is essentially precedent law. It's uh, what is known as common law is not something that was ever uh, dictated from top down. It emerged through hundreds of years of judges trying to apply the principles of natural law to the cases at hand. And essentially, it's not so much that they're making a law for those things, and as much as it is they're just applying the principles of the law to new problems which new technologies bring about. And I think we, we, we see this happening at a much faster rate because technology is advancing more and more quickly. And I think that's helping clarify this more and more to people in that you see it, as you said, you know, uh, your credit card company, your cell phone company, it's much more efficient for them to set up the institutions that they need in order to pro- to manage these disputes. And uh, these things will emerge much more responsive to people's demands and what people actually want from the market when they are handled by the free market. Right. So a lot of what even is in current government contract law emerged over many centuries, rules of evidence, how are we going to look into things, settle things, came out of a private body of law called the law merchants, the Lex Mercatoria. They had in medieval Europe what were called pie powder courts or dusty feet courts where the merchants would come in, they needed a a way to solve disputes quickly, they couldn't rely on government courts. And so they said, okay, we're going to uh, opt in to these private private courts rather than relying on government courts. And over the centuries, the government said, oh, well, that makes sense, that makes sense. And so they actually have imported a lot of private legal principles into the government courts. And I'm sure there's a lot of nonsense in the government courts as well. But to the extent that we can say, oh, there's some, some you know, accumulated wisdom, it's not like on day one, the government officials said, here's all of the rules of the game, and now the market is going to emerge. This is something that's been emerging for thousands of years, and largely through this decentralized private manner. Yeah. Well, uh, I think uh, this is probably a uh, pretty comprehensive coverage of the main ideas in your uh, book. If anybody has any more questions, please feel free to ask them in the chat or uh, ask to get on and you can ask them. But I wanted to also shift and talk a little bit about your time at the uh, American Institute for Economic Research. In particular, you uh, you were president at the time when uh, you guys published the Great Barrington Declaration. That uh, got you guys a lot of a lot of uh, negative attention. Um, you were portrayed as very evil people for daring to uh, speak those truths. Can you share with us your experience with the uh, COVID hysteria and uh, with the Great Barrington Declaration and what you made of it? Well, it was a really- really interesting time to see what we now know was alarmism. The initial estimates of the case fatality rates of the people like uh, Fauci or Neil Ferguson were off by orders of magnitude. And at the time, they were implementing a lot of policies which had 
tremendous economic collateral damages, unintended consequences. The idea that we can just shut down an economy is like saying, oh, well, let's just shut down this airplane in the middle of the air for two weeks or for three years. And so as an economist, I'm always used to thinking about various government proclamations and thinking, okay, maybe that's true, maybe it's not true, and then thinking about a potential downside. And someone living on the East Coast and observing the way restaurants work and various service industry works, it's in many cases, they're operating on razor thin margins. And so to just simply shut down businesses, that's not going to be without a cost. And in many cases, it's the people who, in certain cases, even people who are here illegally or just a low, uh, lower wage earners, they don't have a huge cushion that they can just sit back and wait tables over Zoom. And so it was pretty obvious, I think, early on that this was going to be a potential problem. And then to then think about some of the statements that people were making in a very, I'll just call it unscientific way. We all got brainwashed to, to, to follow the science, this idea that the science is settled. It's really laughable. The uh, people who uh, push that position, I think, oh, the scientific method, an apology. The scientific method is looking for evidence, seeing if some data is consistent with it, coming up with different hypotheses and null hypotheses. Oh, well, we can't reject that one. Oh, well, we can reject that one. And going over time, it became very clear that there was a narrative being pushed uh, at the same time, not looking at the costs of the uh, government policies. So in retrospect, we now know that diseases, respiratory viruses, for good or bad, circulate throughout the population. We now know that it uh, was very dangerous to certain groups of people, specifically older people, the case fatality rates among older people is much higher. But we also know that among young people, particularly school-aged children, that the case fatality rate is much magnitudes lower than all of the central planners, the scientific central planners. And so I think that in retrospect, these people caused a huge amount of damage to society and we had created a uh, platform to show that there's not just one perspective. It turns out that government, specifically Fauci and Collins, were, were pushing for one, one perspective. They were in regular contact with Twitter and Facebook. I'm sure also the mainstream media as well to say, here's the only perspective that matters if you are saying something else, you're pushing untruths. So I never know how to pronounce it, the New Zealand prime minister's uh, last name, so I'm just going to botch it. But she said, I am the source of all truth and go through me. And then similarly, Fauci says, I am the science. And that's just inherently anti-science. And so what we had done was we created a, a, a platform. At one point, the web traffic consistently 
was higher than all newspapers in the United States except for the top 10. So we would have been the equivalent of the 11th largest newspaper uh, and just in terms of web viewership. And uh, just creating that platform for various people to say, look, here's these different ideas. And then we had the good fortune to work with uh, some great scientists who were able to say, look, lockdowns always and forever are not the silver bullet that people assume. And there's going to be, there is collateral damage associated with that. So I'm extremely grateful for being able to uh, work with so many great people to uh, help bring this message out there, which, uh, as you suggest, now now I think it's probably more well known to be less controversial. But at the time, it was very considered very very controversial. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was uh, it was pretty remarkable how everybody. Uh, had developed all these very strong opinions about disease control in a, in, in an extremely religious way and not religious just in the sense of this is the truth and it can't be disputed, but also religious in a sense of tribalism in the sense that if you go against what our religion says, that you're an apostate and you're, you're a heretic and, uh, you know, it, 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 we can't just let you be wrong. We need to lynch you effectively online uh, you know obviously we're not going to come close to you because we are afraid of viruses but uh, we need to do the lynching online and you know i found it absolutely fascinating you know the, and and then later on we saw emails were revealed in which you know fauci and francis collins were discussing how to fight this declaration how to fight your scientists how to make sure that the media doesn't give them coverage that the media attacks them and it's absolutely insane that uh, government officials would be acting in this way and I think it's it's an excellent illustration of the uh, issues that we were discussing earlier in terms of the uh, market for defense and security. This was not much of a common uh, topic within this context. You know, back then people weren't really all that scared about epidemics, so they wouldn't have given you, you know, what do you do? How would you handle the epidemic? And I think initially, when uh, the when you when the coronavirus crisis first started, this was viewed as, you know, the moment of the death of libertarianism, where everybody's going to see that libertarianism and free market thinking is irrelevant, it's pointless, it can't protect us from diseases, and all of these people are just obsessed with money, and all of their selfish concern about freedom and money can't protect anybody from a virus, and in order to be protected from a virus, we need you know, government coercive control. And I think in the intervening three years, I think the majority of uh, thoughtful people, with the exception, you know, there's there are people who benefit financially from this hysteria and there are people who stake their reputation professionally and intellectually on this hysteria. And so they're extremely invested in this. And a lot of people are losing their mind in the idea that this was a once in a millennium threat. And the only way that we could have fought it was to just have this draconian measures uh, get in, imposed. But I think the vast majority of people are now realizing, yeah, clearly masks where about um, panic and people being scared and people trying to uh, pretend that they can do something when really there's very little evidence just that they work. And it's insane that we were forcing children to do them. And in fact, they've done a lot more harm than good. 
because um, they've retarded kids' development in terms of their ability to talk, their ability to communicate, their ability to develop emotional intelligence. This is an enormous cost that is being paid by children. And then you think about the lockdowns and the kids that missed out on school and the kids that missed out on uh, so many of the experiences of life that were gone for a couple of years. And all of it with very, very, very flimsy justification. I think it's amazing how... Uh, if you asked all of the uh, COVID fanatics in April 2020 or May 2020, if you asked them what should be done about an epidemic, they would have given you all of them. They would have sang from the same hymn sheet. You know, we do one, two, three, four, the same thing that Fauci says on TV. If you'd met the same people in January 2020, four months earlier and said, hey, what would you do if there was a big epidemic of a respiratory virus? And none of them would have suggested any of those things. Not, not even, you know, the experts in those fields. Everybody was very clear about the fact that lockdowns don't work. That's not the way to do it. And then suddenly, once the message from above, once the kind of fiat message from above be becomes, this is what we need to do, everybody's brain is not engaged in thinking about what needs to be done. They're engaged in rationalizing. How do we justify believing what they're telling us to believe? And it's... It's remarkable that you guys stood up to that. So thank you. I appreciate it. It was a it was a difficult time for 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 many people, especially as you mentioned, uh, the children. It's not economics is not just about supporting bankers. It's it's about supporting everybody. And the fact is, most people do not have jobs that they can work from home. Maybe they could work from home for one day, but two weeks that that is that is unacceptable. Uh, it didn't turn out to be two weeks. It turned out to be three months, then then three years in many cases. Uh, what's remarkable now, I'm, I'm really interested in, I had the opportunity to talk with a couple of prominent lockdown fanatics that, that you probably know. And I posed the following question. I said, I said, do you think this is done in an abstract way? Do you think the lockdown advocates will admit that they overestimated the case fatality uh, rates by tremendous amount. And this guy says, no, no, they'll never admit that. And I said, do you think that they will admit the collateral damage, the unintended consequences of shutting down the economy for so long? He said, oh, no, they'll never admit that. So what I found is certain people who were lockdown fanatics are now pretending that they have been on the side of freedom and reopening the entire time. Uh, so there's not a, oh, you know what, we messed up. I, I'm sorry for funding Neil Ferguson, who was an alarmist, who he couldn't even follow his own lockdown edicts because he and his illicit girlfriend realized that, that it's, it's just too much to be indoors for, for two weeks. It's very irresponsible for somebody who has the leisure of being able to work from home to mandate these policies on everybody else in society. And then three years later, say, oh, I, I, I never said we should have lockdowns. Um, so it's really interesting to see this like, um, oh, yeah, Psh, can you believe that people think that that masks stop the spread of a respiratory virus. That is just so dumb. I can't believe anybody would ever think that. I literally heard that from a prominent lockdown 
person just uh, the other day. So in that sense, I think it's a, a victory, but they're, they're not apologizing. Yeah, this is this I think was uh, I noticed this from early on, and I think those of us who are familiar with the economics of socialism are very familiar with. Oh, but it wasn't real socialism argument, and this is exactly what this is. A lot of these people will tell you, you know, those governments were so lazy they should have listened to me, they should have panicked much earlier, and they should have shut down the world earlier. And if only we'd had a real lockdown, because that wasn't real lockdown. If only we'd had you know real real lockdowns for you know whatever arbitrary criteria that i can look back and um suggest now because there's absolutely no cost to suggesting this thing there's no way that you can disprove me because we can't run an experiment <laughs> to empirically test this on the entire planet with another disease to so to show whether my insane idea is actually correct so yeah so if they've only had listened to me then you know they would have nipped the thing in the bud in the first two weeks and then uh, we wouldn't have had to have another two years of despotism. And this is just so idiotic because, I mean, if you still think the thing was about uh, health, you know, clearly <laughs> you're not the brightest tool in the shed or sharpest knife in the shed or whatever it is. Um, I mean, the, the, the way in which the top-down message continued to always go back to, hey, we need to control more of your life and more of your time and more of your money. And here's another excuse and here's another reason. And all of these things happen and they all point us in the direction of, yep, we need to take advantage of the power of emergency that you have given us because you're scared. And we found a new crazy thing for you to do. We're going to shut down your business. We're going to force your kids to wear masks. And we're going to just turn you into a completely helpless slave watching their TV every day and hoping that the masters let you out because we are getting a, a kick out of it. And hey, our corporate sponsors love it. <laughs> Yeah, that's the other uh, frustrating part is so many of the businesses got swept into this and financing this. The social media companies especially, uh, we now know that they had, and maybe they still do, um, government agents working within their ranks to push certain narratives. We know now from the Twitter files that the government would have certain talking points that they would give to the social media companies and, and even individual politicians could say, uh, this person is um, saying things which I don't agree with, and so let's silence this. So there was this illusion that all of the science, sci the science, the science was settled as just the most um, nonsensical statement of all time. And if you question that, it's like, ah, oh, you're, you're, you know, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. And it turns out these top, top scientists, top epidemiologists said, no, no, this is a very new proposal. This, these non-pharmaceutical interventions are untested. There's no evidence that they are going to prevent the spread of the virus. And we, we now know, for example, with China, they pushed this, you know, zero COVID policy for so long. And according to certain people there, the existence of the Olympic Games showed the Chinese people that the world has gone beyond lockdowns. And that was one potential reason why there was more protests in China was the Olympics were not censored. And they saw that people were actually interacting in a normal way. And so since China, the the really the archetype of all, a lot of this stuff 
has abandoned the, the lockdowns and the zero COVID policy, their stock market had been just flailing for, for, for over, if you invested 10 years, you would have had negative returns if you invested in China, uh, overall market um, MSCI index. But now that they've got rid of these uh, terrible draconian policies over the last few months, their stock market is starting to recover. So we've got a lot of bad assumptions going into it, people making the most unrealistic possible assumptions, and then coming out of an abundance of caution, we're going to uh, make very, very restrictive policies which destroy businesses, cause massive amounts of social unrest uh, without thinking about any of the downsides of that. Yeah, uh, well, Pavel was asking a question that I also had in mind. What are your thoughts on whether we're going to get a similar level of hysteria on the whole uh, carbon dioxide crisis that the planet is going through? So it's interesting that Fauci was uh, involved with AIDS alarmism in the 1980s. You can see a video where he talks about how people can get AIDS just through casual contact from casual contact with gay people and Haitians. And that had the effect of people stigmatizing certain groups that he mentioned, specifically homosexuals and Haitians and intravenous drug users were the three groups that he mentioned. So there was a huge amount of, of alarmism. HIV is real, AIDS is real. It did kill a lot of people. It's very unfortunate and sad uh, disease. But, but some of the uh, alarmism that people would talk about how, um, you know, you, you just touch somebody and then you can get AIDS, that, that, that is very counterproductive. It's anti-science and uh, that same alarmism got translated into other policies that are unrelated to AIDS, unrelated to COVID. But it's interesting to see that the same people who are alarmists on one topic are also alarmists on lots of other topics. And so it's this idea that things are slightly out of control. Things are scary. What's the solution? Government. But I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. It's okay, children. I'm the government and I'm here to help you. And so I do think that social media is brilliant in a creepy, evil way in that they were able to see which hot button issues will get people upset. And then they serve those hot button issues up to people in a way that led to mass hysteria through internet users, through CNN viewers. I saw uh, you had a great <laughs> quote a few months ago where you said, you don't have to read this author. You can just watch CNN uh, if you want your, de- your IQ to decrease by 15 points. Uh, so there's so many ways that people get tricked into various things. And so uh, I'm sure they're thinking about the next crisis now. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the climate crisis has been in the works for quite a while. It's been decades and they've really been ramping up the propaganda. I think the, the, the tricky part about it is that you just don't see people dropping in the street uh, because of CO2. And 
it's becoming less and less, I think, acceptable to people, particularly after COVID. I mean, maybe I'm just being delusionally optimistic here uh, because they just haven't turned up the full court press propaganda yet. And once they do, then we're going to see the same kind of hysteria with COVID. But like with COVID, remember, there was the videos of the Chinese people in Wuhan falling dead in the street because of the virus. And I remember, you know, March 2020 and February 2020, when everybody was freaking out, Every everybody was freaking out. It was always well. That how do you explain those people falling in the street? And here we are, three years later. We haven't seen people falling in the street because of the virus. Uh, we started seeing them later on in athletes, um, presumably for different reasons. But we never saw this kind of people falling in the street because of the virus. And in fact, you know, the, when people get hit, they don't just uh, a virus is not a bullet. You don't drop dead uh, on the spot. It takes a lot of time for this to happen. Maybe it is more difficult. The optimist in me wants to believe it's more difficult to have something like this with climate change because, let's face it, we've always had flooding. We've always had droughts. We've always had earthquakes. We've always had everything. There's, there isn't a thing that is new under the sun, and they're always trying to twist it as if everything that's happening now is only happening because of the last couple of hundred years of people burning fuels. But it's becoming very difficult to pull that off. You know, I've spent the last, it's been about four months now that I've asked on my Twitter, I'd like to host somebody on the podcast to just debate me on the question of, is a human emission of CO2 causing a climate crisis? And I won't see a person who will actually want to debate this honestly. It's, it's truly indefensible. And I don't think it, uh, I mean, the optimist in me thinks there isn't that kind of shock value where you can get to something that is so... Um, scary and visceral for people where they're seeing people dying and people in the hospital and China's covering up the virus and all of this intrigue, which just basically leaves people startled and watching their CNN and completely vulnerable, essentially brain wide open, ready to take whatever instructions you get, it, you give it. It's, I don't know. I think, you know, the, the uh, w- with the case of the climate, obviously the hardcore uh, true believers always have that and they're always getting worked up about anything you know anybody uh, uh, slips in the rain and breaks their leg and they start uh, raiding at uh, co2 but i think the majority of people are just maybe not going to buy it although who knows i could be wrong i like your optimism and i think that's the way to go i do think that there's people who study specifically using uh, technology including social media, ways to see whether somebody's going to react to something. So the body count numbers on CNN constantly being reported, I think that's really, you know, getting people alarmed, like, okay, this is scary. Be scared, be scared. And there's certain things that are going to resonate with certain people. I had read a few years ago, a uh, great book, The Plague by Camus. And I recommend that highly to everybody. And uh, one of the lessons on that actually is the importance of just plowing forward, the importance of being positive, the importance of, of helping people. When you, when you can help people, you need to help people. And not letting not letting the disease destroy their lives. And so I thought the book was fantastic. And it provides a very different approach to being forward-looking rather than getting very upset about everything. I think you're right that 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 particular 
you know, way they phrased it. There's an enemy. And you know who's going to, you know, who's going to give it to? Everyone else. Everyone is in a vector of disease. Really got people in to a frenzy. I mean, the idea, this is so sad, but um, mothers who had their babies were not allowed to hold their babies because what if their babies gave them COVID or vice versa? I mean, this is just absolutely crazy. This is one of the, um, from what I understand, a very important bonding moment in human life. And so the fact that people could get tricked into worrying about that or, or not seeing their loved ones when they're dying, I think they, they found a hot button issue that could really, you know, get everybody very, very nervous and, and, and whipped up into a frenzy. And I think it's quite something that at least, you know, casual observation, I think a lot of people at this point know it's just completely ridiculous. It was, it was a waste of time. It was based on lies. And I think an unfortunate side effect of that is, is now people are not uh, seeking medical care the way they used to because they just think, oh, medical profession is just full of baloney. We don't trust them. They're a bunch of liars. And, and I actually, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of truth in that. But that's also going to have collateral uh, damage because people who do need treatment are, are going to be less likely to get it. But I do think at this point, there's there's a, a bit of skepticism that that it, it did take three years, but I think a lot of the people realize that they, they were lied to. And I don't think it would be easy to pull off again. Even Fauci said, he said, well, yes, we we would not have another lockdown again. And well, if that if he's so date quote data driven, he needs to be looking at the the deadliness of the next virus. And if it's as deadly as he predicts it's going to be, then we need lockdowns. And so uh, what he's clearly doing is reading the tea leaves and noticing that people uh, don't have time for that nonsense and closing schools. Oh, the kids are resilient. No, no kids. Kids are vulnerable. Kids need care, especially kids in lower income families don't have 10 bedroom house where they can just go and, and uh, ride their, their pony outside and uh, entertain themselves. And so I think that there would be a difficult time pitching draconian lockdowns again. The fact that lockdown advocates have disavowed them. Oh, I never was in favor of that. That is fantastic. And so now can they apply this thinking to something else? They will, yes. But will the public be smarter next time? I hope so. Yeah, I hope so too. Although, I mean, if you look around, um, places like uh, Oxford in England are already uh, beginning to implement and like laying down actual physical infrastructure for what they're calling the 15-minute cities. And apparently this is uh, some World Economic Forum uh, subsidized insanity wherein um, in order to fight climate change and make your life better, they're going to lock you in into 15-minute area of your city. And the idea will be that you're only going to get a specific amount of times where you're allowed to visit the rest of the city. So you want to rearrange your life so that you can live in the place where, you know, your work and your kids' school and the place where you're go to get your groceries are all within this 15-minute city. And then if everybody does that, 
then we will significantly reduce the amount of transportation and emissions that are being produced in every city. What are your thoughts on this genius idea? I mean, this is just <laughs> crazy. I, I used to be of the position that World Economic Forum was, oh, it's not, they're not really into these conspiracies the way people say they are. But now I'm like, maybe <laughs> it seems like they are into conspiracies. Uh, Elon Musk said that uh, after buying Twitter, it's he said, actually, every single conspiracy theory about Twitter turned out and the government colluding turned out to be true. And they're actually much worse than than anybody had predicted. So <laughs> I, I can uh, imagine there are people at World Economic Forum coming up with various new crazy ideas right now. And, uh, you know, just initial reaction, it's especially, especially people who don't have the extra money to be able to afford to live in the most expensive part of the most expensive cities. How are they going to, how are they going to work 15 minutes away from, from where they live? I mean, that, that would really deprive the opportunity for, for lower income people to be coming to areas where there's more opportunity for them to say, oh, no, you got to stay off in your, your hinterland. It's just such a uh, uh, profound economic misunderstanding of how cities bring lots of people together. And that's one of the great advantages of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, you know, the counterpoint to that, Edward, is if these people who want to work in the center of the city, can't afford a house in the center of the city, uh, they could just move into a little bug pod, uh, you know, just a small little pod where they just lie down and sleep. That costs very little rent. And so if you just give up on your house, then you get to live in a little tiny bug pod that's in the center of a city with like 10,000 people in the building that would usually house 100 people. And then uh, you pay very cheap rent. And, of course, the most important thing is you make very few emissions. So like, think about all of the synergies of how we're going to fix the weather by locking people up into their tiny bug pods and 15-minute cities and then having everybody locked down here. Then, I mean, I'm so excited by the possibilities. I can't believe you aren't. We're just going to reduce the emissions of carbon and then we are never going to have any bad weather ever again. It sounds like a great idea. And we can also have... Uh, families with multiple children doing schooling inside these uh, little pods that you're describing. Although preferably you wouldn't have families and multiple children. Like, you know, that also could, children consume a lot of, and emit a lot of carbon dioxide. Ideally, you just, you know, you make do with the plastic uh, artificial uh, doll for a wife and uh, you eat artificial meat for food and you live in a tiny pod and, that way you'll be a model citizen because you won't produce any carbon dioxide and you won't have produce any other people who are going to come into life and produce carbon dioxide like you. Well, out of an abundance of caution, <laughs> we should follow this plan because we can't think of any possible downsides of this plan. And we can assume some infinitesimal risk being very high. We should adopt the policy one of the worst things that I observed as somebody living in the East Coast along various cities in 
New England and New York area and my travels th throughout this region is the Zoom class who has the luxury of sitting at their laptop using Twitter all day are very likely to be complacent and say, well, I don't notice any lockdowns whatsoever. I'm just sitting off in my huge suburban mansion and what's wrong with lockdowns? Why are you complaining? And it's the people in the cities who have to make do with smaller living quarters who it was so much more difficult, for example, remote schooling, which is not schooling. That is just a, a total scam that you're going to just give somebody a, uh, an iPad and that's an equivalent to schooling. People who formerly had very comfortable lives where, well, somewhat comfortable lives where the family would be at work during the day, the kids would be at school during the day. You cram all of those people into a very small apartment and these people are now at each other's throats all the time. And so it takes a lot of um, disregard for the children, for the, the lockdown advocates to say, oh yeah, we're, we're just going to do things this way. And uh, <laughs> your current proposals, which sound so great, I can't think of any ways that they could go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us, Edward. I've uh, enjoyed this discussion a lot, and thank you for all of your work. Tell us more about uh, what your plans are for the future, where people can find you online, and uh, what uh, what you're up to in the future. Saifdeen, thank you so much for having me. I'm continuing to work on various research articles that show that a lot of things we assume that come from the government, the order actually comes privately. And I'm super excited that you have uh, been into Bitcoin for so long. And you and I have always been uh, having these discussions about the various items in the space. And I personally am very optimistic about the whole area. I just wrote an article about Bitcoin usage in Africa, Nigeria specifically. And so I'm going to just continue to be doing various research articles. If people are interested in reading my book, it's available on any website such as Amazon or Barnes and Noble's Private Governance from Oxford University Press. And I post various articles on uh, different academic websites such as Social Science Research Network. And I've published in various outlets such as Wall Street Journal, USA Today. So just to continue to do this research, to talk about the things that we assume are done by government, the order that exists in the world all around us, actually behind the scenes is made possible by the invisible hand, by private governance. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. And I wish you all the best continuing to do all the great work that you do. Thanks a lot. Thanks.